So I want to welcome you all, those in person and those who are live streaming to Ordinary Life, an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And um, if you are live with us here, you can see that anxiety about the Delta variant is having its way with us. Uh, there were almost more people in the choir than there attended the first service today at St. Paul's. Yeah. So um, take care of yourself. My request is that um, when you exit this building and go down, please mask on the lobby on the, in the, while going through the lobby on the way out because we have unvaccinated children here and so that will be helpful. I want to, um, as always, thank um, William and Olivia and John and Richard and Wayne and Calista and everybody who um, helps with the logistical side of getting this going. But I want to give a special shout out to Tim Leatherwood. I do not often watch the video of this, but I did this week. And I don't do it because for the same reason I don't Google my name. <laughs> <laughs> he had a chance to get inflated there. But Tim does a masterful job. And I just want to thank you, Tim. It's just wonderful what you do. <laughs> it's great. So thank you all for, for that. Um, and as usual, we want to dedicate this time today to our growing in our awareness of who we are, of who our neighbor is, and of who sacred mystery is, and how we can inhabit sacred mystery and allow sacred mystery to inhabit us. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome, welcome here. here. So <clears throat> here's an item. Mm -hmm. Maybe you saw this on the news last, I think it was last week. Uh, as I did say last week, that uh, whenever a doofus shows up politically or religiously, they seem to be from Texas or Tennessee. <laughs> This is a video, this is a video of angry protesters in Franklin, Tennessee, after a school district um, reinstates a mask mandate for elementary school students. And what got to me was the threatening rage expressed by people yelling at and heckling those wearing masks in the parking lot after the meeting. And the protesters were shouting, we will not comply. And um, in the video, one man is screaming at a person. I think a person is a doctor. It's a doctor, yeah. Uh, as they were on the way to go. As he's gets in, getting in his car. We, we know who you are. You will never be allowed in public again. And another said, you can leave freely, but we will find you. Here's another item. Maybe you saw this. A Florida mother was on a Zoom call for work. One of her toddlers picked up an unsecured loaded handgun and shot her in the head. Oy. That child will never survive that wound, or never, I don't know how you deal with that kind of thing. That same day, a three-year-old girl was shot and killed by a five-year-old boy in their home in Minnesota. So far this year, 968 children have been killed by guns. And that does not include anyone killed in the epidemic of other gun violence we are experiencing in this country. By the end of July, there had been 411 mass shootings in the United States, leaving 437 people dead and 1,688 injured. Or consider this. The FAA usually investigates around 140 cases of violence on airlines a year. So far this year, there have been over 500. One flight attendant had two teeth knocked out trying to enforce a masking rule on the airplane. Or perhaps you read about the man in Lumberton, North Carolina, who was apprehended and charged with murder this week. In a road rage incident, he shot and killed the mother of his mic just went off. Hey, Bill. Oh, it fell off. 
We interrupt this program. To While I re, re mic. Yeah, I didn't have a. So I could go on and on giving uh, incidents and statistics like this. Well, wh what is all of this about? Well, one social commentator whom I respect said that he thinks it's about the pandemic. He said that we have been given a collective case of post-traumatic stress disorder. And certainly we have experienced and are experiencing a loss of control, this invisible virus has dictated how and where and whether we will work, how our children are educated, how we travel, whether we can eat out or not, whether we can socialize with people we love or not. I cannot tell you the number of people who had absolutely no pastoral or family care during critical, even dying moments in the hospital during the shutdown because no one could get to them. And just when we thought we were coming out of this, the Delta variant gives us another surge. Harper's Magazine, anybody take Harper's besides me? Mm -mm. Harper's Magazine um, gives statistics of all kinds. I love it. And in this August issue, for this year, there are these statistics. Percentage of Americans who say their personality has changed over the course of the pandemic, 86. Estimated percentage by which the COVID death toll in the United States exceeds what are the reported figures, 55%. By which the worldwide death toll exceeds what's reported, 122%. So one of the ways that people cope is by venting anger, reasserting control, attacking people in person, online, with fists, with words, or guns. That's a release. So when people are frustrated and frightened and sad, they look for someone to blame. They look for someone to take it out on. So after yet another one such senseless angry incident, I found myself in this pretzel twisted place and I spoke to my beautiful bride about it. There have been so many now, I now forget what the incident was. But I knew that I was angry. I was angry at the angry people. I wanted to shoot the people who shot people. I wanted to punch the people who punched people. I wanted to shout at the people who yelled insults and abuses at others. So she listened, women are good at that. And she gently said, why don't you offer them compassion? And as I was trying to take this in, uh, she said, why don't you practice what you preach? That is hitting below the belt. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what gave me the title for this class today, Can We Practice What We Preach? This is a perfect way, I think, to get into the last part of the story Jesus told about the compassionate father and his two lost sons. Because truly, I identify more times than I really care to admit with the older brother. Yeah. That's why it was so hard to write about it. <laughs> I have had this ongoing note-taking um, in my documents. And uh, as I was reading, collecting, whenever I have the section on the younger son, the section on the elder son, the section on the father, and sort of different thoughts in my middle son, or elder son one was the shortest. And at some point in my notes, it was like, why am I having such a hard time writing about him? Because I'm so much like him. Um, <laughs> So I, we didn't talk very much this week. We didn't do a podcast normally. Our podcast has maybe served more purposes for us being able to sort of flesh out ideas and talk through things as we're starting to write. If you listen, thank you. If you don't, start. It's genius. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> so I, I do find it interesting, however, that I was with my kids in Uvalde at a last little dance before school starts, and there just wasn't space to talk. We were on the same page on some of this, you know, so we're thinking about this 
particular part of the parable in similar ways. So I guess maybe having been a student here for 20 years, maybe it's paying off. Maybe. Our minds are melding a little. I don't know. We'll see. Um, but what got me thinking about it is how quickly I, and maybe some of you, react to situations out of our control with fear and anger. And there's a very thin space between fear and anger. I have learned that as a mom. And we all, I also react out of criticism and scarcity thinking. Ask Josh, when I'm in an anxious place, I get like, why didn't you put that fork away? Right? Why didn't that, you know, I just get critical. And I catch myself doing it and kind of go, whew, I better stop. <laughs> but sometimes, like Bill said, thinking vengefully feels so good. <laughs> why can't they just do this? Or why are they so? Or they had what's coming until you realize what you're doing. Even with my kids, when they're being difficult and argumentative, I sometimes feel justified in my anger. And then, of course, I get knocked to my knees when they dish out exactly to me what I just served. Don't yell at your brother. I won't. Why are you yelling at me? Yeah. <laughs> I think I've told this story about my youngest coming in one day and being like, you need to speak nicely to me. And it brought me to my knees. I was like, you're right. I do. So I don't think we want to sit up here and teach you how to be more like us. I think we're hoping that we're exploring what it is to be human together, that we're in this human experiment too. We're just trying to talk it through as we're in it, as we're learning, as we're figuring out how to live in the world with more compassion. I can't speak for Bill, but for sure I am not above it all. I follow an Instagram handle that I've come to love called Black Liturgies because she speaks so honestly in her prayers to the pain in this world. And she's a black woman, uniquely speaking probably more to specifically even black female experiences, but she's also speaking to this larger sense of pain and anxiety and fear that I think a lot of people relate to. She, last week, in response to several recent painful events, she wrote, for those that feel helpless, when the world is aching. The inherent expectation is that our role is as savior so that we should know and understand what is best for countries. These are her words, and I would add individuals. It's precisely what must be dismantled for their protection and liberation. She writes, listen, learn, take responsibility, give reparations, lean into the sacred practice of decentering, inhale, God help me enter their pain, exhale, without centering mine. This is, I think, one of the ways we can learn from the older brother in the parable. He centers his own pain and hurt and jealousy instead of leaning into the sacred practice of decentering. He is, in a word, so much like so many of us, or maybe I should just say me, leading with our wounds instead of tending to others. So you know this story, um, so I'm not going to repeat the whole thing. I do want to line out this segment. And uh, keep in mind that one of the reasons that I wanted to do these three parables that we've done, the parable of the treasure found in the field, the pearl of great price, and then this parable, is to get us in the right mindset for... Um, the deep dive we're going to do in the Gospel of John starting next week. The Gospel of John is one long parable slash metaphor. And it's abused and misunderstood when taken as a literal history. It's a story. And, and it's got a lot, I think, to teach us if we can look at it through that particular lens. So um, I'll line it out, make a few comments, and then we'll get into some application for it. There was his son, the elder one, in the field. And as he was coming, he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And calling to one of the boys, he inquired what it might mean. So here we are back at this two sons theme. The two sons theme appears frequently in both the Hebrew scriptures and in the Christian writings. Elder brothers don't usually have good reputations in these stories. And uh, so this elder brother is going to either live up or down to that reputation, depending on how you look at it. 
Spatial reference is always important in Jewish tales because it indicates distance and the closing of distance. Shows there's a distance between this son and his father. He's away in the field, and the other brother had been away in the foreign country. So there's distance on both sides. He said to him, meaning the slave or the field hand, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he got him back in good health. So the parable begins with these two sons and now it switches to their status as brothers. And this is a very important shift in the, in the parable. So the elder son now is going to challenge the father's acceptance of the younger son. Uh, the father's accepting of the younger son is going to go against everything that was taught in Jewish law. He's going to challenge the father's control. He was angry and did not wish to go in. His father, coming, pleaded with him. Father leaves the house to go get the younger son. The father leaves the house to go talk to the younger son. There's a lot going on in this brief line. So the refusal to go into the house is a rejection of the father. Asking for the inheritance was a rejection of the father. And his, his refusal to go in shames the father. And again, you remember, in Jewish, the belonging system, how shame and honor are, are bound together. By not honoring the father, he's cut himself off from the father. Answering, he said to his father, See how many years I slaved for you and never went against your commandment. And never did you give me a goat so that I might make merry with my friends. When this son of yours, who ate up your life with harlots came, that's a supposition, you kill for him the fatted calf. Honor, huge issue in this culture. The elder son complains that the father has not lived up to the demands of this honor. The younger son has brought shame on the family, and the father disregards this. And as the elder brother sees it, he has played by the rules all these years, being virtually a faithful slave to his father, while the younger son has been this depraved profiteer. And so sharp is the contrast that he refers to his brother as that son of yours, not as my brother. So from the father's point of view, the younger son was lost and is now found. He was dead, is now alive. So both the father and the elder son see the same actions, but they see them differently. Now, that ever happened in any relationship that you have? <laughs> He said to him, child, you are always with me, and everything that is mine is yours. To make merry and to rejoice was necessary, because this, your brother, was dead and lives, and being lost is found. So the father's view of the elder son is as his companion and co-owner of the estate. Everything I have is yours. You've always, I've always been with you. You've always been with me. But the elder son fails to recognize that the father is always on his side and he need not earn his father's approval. He has made himself a slave for something that was already his. Now I want to repeat that. He has made himself a slave for something that was already his. I think that easily misunderstood religion can get us in this way. Brandon Scott, whose work on the parables is about as good as anybody I know, he says about the father, he says, as a father, he's a failure. But as a mother, he's a success. It is his forgiving, nourishing character that has entranced generations of hearers and readers it's the finding of his children that matters most to him, not his honor. He does not reject the elder son. The elder son rejects him. So you get the picture. 
The younger son violates the moral code of the day, and he gets a feast. The elder son rejects the father, but he gets everything. Because the father is not interested in either morality or inheritance. He's concerned with the unity of his sons, with the unity of his family. Now, why did those who first heard this story want to kill the storyteller? Such a great story. Because the community of empowerment that Jesus invited to enter into and to live from is not something that decides between or divides, but it's something that unifies. The kingdom, the empire, the community, whatever you want to call it, that Jesus invites people into and encourages us to live from is something that does not divide, but it is something that unifies. So as I pointed out, the father in this story leaves the house for both these boys, the younger when he was far off, the elder when he's in the field. And in both instances, the father dishonors himself. So Jesus is clearly rejecting the notion that some group is going to be rejected at the expense of others. And yet, sadly, that has been the history of most of the Christian religion. Division, exclusion, who's in, who's out. Now, I believe that we're to identify with all three of the characters in this story. We are more likely to be comfortable identifying with the younger son. We acknowledge that we wandered off the path. We need to come home, and when and if we do, we are relieved to be taken back. And as I opened with today, most of us are most likely to identify with the elder son. Um, if you don't notice this about yourself, start by noticing it about other people. <laughs> Notice how arrogant people can be and how right and righteous they've got it right. The world would be a better place if others just come to see the truth of that. I mean, we'd start with small things like using your turn signal. Oh, <laughs> man. Every time I use my turn signal, I think of Bill. <laughs> so when we take this position, we're not at home either. We're still standing out in the field pouting that we're not getting our way. So we work to get and stay in control. So many stories that Jesus told are like traps. The moment you say, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that elder brother. <laughs> we like him. Yeah. We just became his twin. I, I, I know this is a truer than true story. This is not a factual story. But. Can you imagine what a disaster it would have been if the elder brother had gotten to the younger brother before the father did? Mm. And yet that's who we most frequently are in the way that we comport ourselves. So what we're called to be, I believe, is the compassionate father and mother in this story, accepting not backing people into corners so that they give us the answers that we want or become the people that we want. The father just accepts both three boys the way they are without condition. I did just realize that this parable gives us a genius parenting strategy when the older son says, that son of yours, you know when you're mad at one kid and you say to your spouse or other or parenting partner, your son just... <laughs> Right? Well, we don't have children at home, so it becomes the, your, your dog. dog. <laughs> <laughs> so that, I, I can appreciate that. Anyhow, last week, two experiences just that I was attentive to made me think of the older son. And when I texted Bill about it, he was like, I don't see how that fits. I was like, well, we'll see if it does. So we'll see if it does. But I'm thinking of the older son less as a person who responds rather ungraciously to his younger brother and father, and more as a kind of attitude or archetype of the shadow, both a systemic shadow as well as kind of an individual shadow. Over the last couple of weeks, the US has been pulling out of Afghanistan, which most of us have become aware of. 
We've learned that many refugees will be relocated to new cities around the country, chief among them Houston. And it's said that refugees will be arriving in droves over the coming days and weeks. There were seven C-17s deployed in one day that transported roughly 600 to 700 Afghans each after doing a supply drop. These continue daily, so that means by the week's end, thousands upon thousands of Afghans were taken from Afghanistan and brought to other places. C-17s are cargo planes. They're not always outfitted with individual seats. You can see this picture. It's, this is a plane. They are literally sitting in the belly of a plane. My son saw this picture and said, is that a slave ship? Because if you see those images of slave ships, the bodies are packed in. No, it's not. However, the, the optics of this, this comes from fleeing. Those who were enslaved, of course, were taken. But the optics of bodies pulled together in a very, I think, anxiety-producing kind of way. So. Their desperation is so great. I don't know if y'all saw this clip or this picture that people were clinging to the outside of planes, trying to hang on as planes took off if they didn't make it. Sadly, some of them lost their lives trying to save their lives in this way. They fell off the planes and were immediately killed. This, that was not intentional. It was just desperate. The caption of this screen grab reads, throngs of people running alongside a US Air Force C-17 preparing for takeoff at Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul, Afghanistan on Monday, August 16th. And then the film clip of this still shows bodies falling off of the planes. So we're nearly 20 years post 9-11. In 2001, the anti-Muslim, anti-Arab sentiments were so strong. This is an example of graffiti scene after 9-11. And people were so gripped by fear that they became angry. And they slammed tables with this, and they pronounced that we should bomb those terrorist expletives. One of my favorite um, bars in Houston, I, I was in my, Richard, how old was I, 24? I don't know, however old I was. And we just, I, we saw each other the day of 9-11 or the day after and um, had bombed the, blanks as their marquee. And I just thought, oh my gosh, we are so terrified. 20 years ago, one of my favorite students of all times was among the Afghan refugees sent here because every single male in her family, except one, her little brother, had been killed by the Taliban. And when she arrived at age 14, terrified but alive, she was in full burqa gear at an airport, not knowing any of the language with her two sisters, her mother, and her little brother. All of them were fluent in eight languages, but not English. So they couldn't communicate very well here. Her family, when they first attended school, had slurs and rocks thrown at them until a social worker placed them at the smaller school where I worked. She would eventually go on to be a Dean's List student at Brandeis University. She was a shining star, still is, in all respects. Josh was her college counselor, and I was her recommending teacher, if you remember the college process. <laughs> and someone sitting here has had Josh walk through the college process of, you know, you write recommendation letters for students to get into college. And um, when Josh was in his office talking to the admissions officer at Brandeis, questioning Josh, do we gamble on this kid? Her grades aren't awesome and her command of the English language is not great. Josh said, I would stake my, this makes me cry. I love this kid so much. I would stake my professional career on this kid. That's the kind of man Josh is. We were both just like gripping the table waiting for her decision as to whether or not Anosha was going to get accepted, and she did. And she was so worth it. There's so many like her, I imagine, coming on these planes. I look at these photos today and I wonder whether our openness to Afghan refugees has increased or not. Are we like the elder brother? Or will we fling our arms toward their tattered and scared bodies and protest their presence? Or will we fatten the calf and welcome them in? I texted my former student the other day just to check in. I've been thinking about her a lot. And she replied to me, I feel like the whole world is devastating. The images from Afghanistan, open wounds that I have ignored and avoided for decades. So um, 
there was a photograph in one of the news reports that showed a helicopter leaving Kabul. Mm -hmm. And they put alongside of it the photograph of the helicopter leaving Hanoi. Mm -hmm. Saigon. 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 Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Some of you old enough to remember that? The, um, as I recall, when you raise a question about well, are we open enough to receive Afghan refugees, as I recall, there was a concerted effort, particularly among religious organizations, to help resettle Vietnamese refugees. Some of you remember that? And it seemed to be something that was greeted warmly, enthusiastically, and right? I don't, I don't remember that there being um, kickback about it. I don't, I don't remember. I know that the, the church. Yeah. I think it's so true. It comes later. Huh? It came later? Yeah. The, the sort of openness happens, and then it's like, well, how do we actually integrate and pull in and, and, and celebrate with people holistically? Mm -hmm. You know, we, our compassion is aroused. What do we do after that? It's so often different. Well, I, I remember the, the church churches that I was part of at that time got involved in that, yeah. and we helped relocate several families. Yeah. yeah, I mean, churches can be good places of inclusion sometimes, too. <laughs> we'll see, right? Mm -hmm. um, anyway, a couple weeks before this text exchange, my student had texted to me, I'm so worried for the women and girls. She has lived this story. Mm. <sighs> for those who feel helpless when the world is aching. The beautiful question mark in the parable that we are reading is that we don't actually know what the elder brother ultimately decides. He vents his spleen, as they say. His father goes out and pleads with him, tells him he loves him, accepts him into the fold. But we don't know what he decides to do. Does he come inside or does he stay in the field? So I think that this is a beautiful moment that he's poised to make this decision of what will I do. The parable leaves it open. Rembrandt furthers the story and has the older brother standing on the threshold as if entering the room. His face is alight, somewhat expressionless, but it gives hope. He's there. How will we further that story? Will we actually come through the threshold or enter the, and enter the room and sit at the table? Will we be able to decenter our own fear, confusion, and judgment, and hold compassion for the pain and suffering of others? What will we stake for those for whom Jesus asked us to call brother, sister, and friend? We don't have to be saviors. Take that off the table. We don't have to have the right answers. But there are ways that we can prepare the fatted calf. My same former student gave me three primary organizations wrapping themselves around refugees here in Houston. One is Catholic Charities, Interfaith Ministries. They always do a wonderful job of, of receiving refugees, and the YMCA. I think she was helped by Interfaith Ministries at the time. She said that sometimes the kindest thing a stranger could do was to provide a ride from the airport or help set up an apartment. No words are needed, no palliative statements. No fixes, no this will be okay, just being alongside with and being entering their pain. There's a lot we can be without having to do very much at all. I love this prayer so much. For those who feel helpless when the world is aching, God help us to enter their pain. Where I have compassion for the older brother, which is to say the aspect of myself that is so like him, is in this feeling of helplessness. He's grappling with that helplessness, with this, I don't belong here. Between his tattered little brother and his kind of drunk on the kind of relief that only love can bring father, he is wondering who will keep the family order together, who will keep things structured. I also have compassion for him because I see in my own self how quickly fear and insecurity can turn to anger, as I said before. Ah, embarrassing story, but the only time I've ever spanked my youngest son is when I saw him tip back a bottle of poison that someone who had been cleaning the exterior of our house left on the porch mistakenly, and my words could not find my mouth fast enough. I grabbed the bottle, I popped his bottom, and then I pulled him into my arms and started crying. Some call that protective use of force. My son probably thought I was insane. Um, 
But I'm just saying I'm so much more like the older brother than I realized that fear turned to anger so fast. You know, you know the words that came out of my mouth were, what were you thinking? He wasn't thinking. He didn't know. You know, and then all of a sudden you're holding and crying. <laughs> so it's like, can we bypass the fear and anger and go straight to the compassion? I think, you know, sometimes we want to have righteous answers and rational fixes, and we have our flashy anger that feels good in the moment. And the call is to be with the pain. Hmm. So um, from time to time, I recall sitting in a classroom in the seminary in a Hebrew class. We were translating <clears throat> the Psalms from Hebrew. And um, we were working on the 23rd Psalm. And uh, the professor said to us, uh, you know the 23rd Psalm. Everybody knows the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They put it on tea towels and you buy it in <laughs> bus stops and gas stations, all the, all the things. And he, he said, um, gentlemen, this is a, the, talking about the Psalm, he said, this is a shallow pool that a child can safely wade in. It is also the most spiritually mature of the Psalms, a fathom, fathomless ocean that has no bottom. It's both. And I think this is true for this parable. I think we could camp out on this parable for a long time, but we are not going to do that. Next Sunday, we're going to begin that deep dive into the Gospel of John. And um, you can go back to last Sunday's class and get the name of the books that we're going to be using. But um, why are you here? I, I don't mean why are you in the room. Although I hope why you're in the room has something to do with why you're here. But once we have met the survival needs, then we have the freedom to decide what are, what are our lives about? Why are we here? What's the purpose of our living? And as I have repeatedly tried to say, I think that we are here to be involved in the process of becoming centers of freedom and love. I believe that growing in religious and spiritual literacy is not only a good thing, I also believe it's fun. I love learning new stuff. More importantly, however, I think it is important to grow spiritually, psychologically, and emotionally. Now, I teach from the Jesus database because it's the tradition in which I stand, and it's in my DNA. And I believe, and I don't mean this in any sort of religiously superior way, that when we hear Jesus' invitation to come and walk the way he teaches, that both we, individually and collectively, and our world will be a better place. So my plea is, let's get into the heart of Jesus. That's one of my hopes for the Gospel of John. Um, that we do get into the heart of Jesus' teaching and uh, to understand how that early community that was clearly transformed by their relationship to him and to the people who decided to follow him, they became these joyful, fearless, forgiving, sharing community of people. So I, and, and having said that, I want to set the stage for what I'm going to say next. It's stating the obvious, but it's something so obvious we most often simply don't see it or stay aware of it. The people that Jesus spent his time with, his friends, those who warmed to his teachings, were not like us. He spoke to, taught, healed, spent time with the marginalized, the poor, the outcast, the homeless, the rejected, those who do, did not belong. And frankly, they were not the kind of people we like to hang out with. 
And I think it helps to be honest about that. But these were the people Jesus called his friends. He said, these are the people that I have come to minister to, not the rest of you. You remember that saying, the healthy have no need physician. So that said, there is another side to this heart of Jesus matter. And I'm almost hesitant to say it because so many here are so turned off by it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about next Sunday how I kind of want to begin getting into the Gospel of John. And I think of something that Kathleen Singh said in one of the most important books I've ever read, The Grace in Dying. She said, um, she was Buddhist, and she said, I'm hesitant to use religious language for those of you who've been turned off by religion. I don't want to turn you off. And I'm hesitant not to use religious language because of those of you who find it so valuable, if I don't use it, you'll be turned off. So I'm in this, <laughs> in this time. But there is a phrase that hesitant to use or not, I think we need to hear. Let's allow Jesus into our hearts. That's the, that's the cry for evangelical Christianity, accept Jesus as your personal Savior. It's not a bad invitation, actually. But if I have learned anything about Jesus over the decades that I have spent searching for the historical Jesus and searching for the authentic words of Jesus, the one thing I know is that before he steps through the door of our hearts, he looks us squarely in the face and says, can I bring my mm. friends? I mentioned earlier that there were two incidents that made me think about the older brother this week. The, the second is related to this question, may I bring my friends? Or who do I call my brother? Uh, I was in Uvalde, Texas last week on the Nueces River, enjoying a few days of just fun and swimming and jumping from cliffs with the boys before school starts and that ugly wake-up call of 6.45 comes. But <laughs> Uvalde is such a beautiful place. And I actually don't think I've ever been there before, And having, even though I'm a native Texan. But some of my favorite things, these layers of limestone surrounding the river, some of my favorite native plants, which I've planted in my own yard, mountain laurel, sage, salvia, that red yucca that grows up as a tall spear almost, and then the Texas big, big sky. I love Texas skies. <laughs> Texas is complicated for me, but I love its skies. Um, and Uvalde is also less than 100 miles from the Mexican border. So bear in mind that where we sit was once part of Mexico. The, what's shaded in red is the towns along the Texas border that are less than 100 miles from the Mexican border. Two things are happening in this part of Texas. Immigrants from Honduras, El Salvador, and Mexico are flooding entry points because their countries are in crisis. And our governor has declared a state of emergency to garner more federal funds and resources toward building a wall. These two brothers are at odds, the migrants, the federal government, our state government. Reference above story to understand a little bit about my tenderness toward immigrants, and you'll probably know which brother I favor here. Um, most of my students, or a good many of my students when I taught, I would say about 98% of my students were immigrants, either first generation, undocumented, or their parents had immigrated here. So it's, it's, it was the water in which I swam for a long time. I definitely know there need to be rules and laws governing immigration, but in my ideal world, those rules and laws would lead with compassion, not with fear. In my mind, these are the friends Jesus asks if he can bring. In my mind, the, this is the tattered younger brother we need not scorn, but enter his pain. This is a picture of a line of immigrants having been pulled from a train. And they are saying that in Uvalde, I kind of got into some of the local news, that at least 40 to 50 are coming through a day, just in Uvalde. So I want to say, I wish I had included this picture. Uh, I, I have it on my computer. One of the guys in my men's group is part of a um, group of men that have access to a hunting lease mm -hmm. in South Texas. So he doesn't own it, but, um, and they have um, hunting cameras that um, 
take videos to let the, you know what I'm talking about, the hunting cameras, and the hunting cameras come on automatically when they detect motion. And uh, he was sharing um, some photographs of the very thing that you're talking about, about mm -hmm. people walking across and trying to get probably to, to Arizona. Probably, that's their hope eventually. Or to but San what, Antonio. Hmm? Or to San Antonio. Or San Antonio. That's mm -hmm. what I, yeah, San Antonio. Mm -hmm. Anyway, one of the pictures that he showed in the middle of the night showed three young children mm -hmm. walking by themselves. We have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. When, when we first got to the Nueces River, there were a line of about five to ten state trooper cars lining the road. And so you pull into this road and you go through a gate and the trooper cars were all outside of the gate, but they were responding to an immigrant spotting. Within five minutes of pulling our car into the little driveway, the groundskeeper, who most definitely was Tejana herself, had some uh, Latina heritage, knocked on our door and explained their presence. She said that a band of illegals were on the loose. And, you know, there's... I, I, I had some cognitive dis dissonance because, of course, I wanted to ask, well, how do you feel about that? <laughs> she probably was surprised by my response, and I just said, oh, I hope they're okay. And I meant the immigrants, and she was kind of like, okay. Because I think in Uvalde County, their resources feel taxed, and they don't have uh, enough to make this work, and not just relief, but also um, police presence, ICE. I mean, all the, all the enforcement agencies are, 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 are deplete there. Anyways, so this bounty on their heads of those seeking shelter, I saw across the way of the river was um, a sign advertising cash money for illegal trespassers up to $1,000. And there's probably, there's a million and a half good reasons why I'm not in politics, and chief among them is because I would get so ego bruised and hurt anytime someone would dislike or express displeasure with me that I would end up in tears. But also, I don't think I want to be in this position of trying to make rules and laws about who belongs and who doesn't. How do we bring in people? How do we do this well? It is so hard, and I, I definitely have respect for being in that position, too. I think we heard from Susan Yarbrough so many years ago in her position of being an immigration judge and how challenging that was for her, how her heart was pulled, but she had to be on the legal side of things. So I, I've been thinking a lot about how do we guarantee that those we let in are worthy or will never mess up. We can't. No more than I can guarantee that I will never mess up. And I wonder if we should even be asking those questions, or should we just allow ourselves to enter their pain as the prayer goes? When I was browsing the local Uvalde news, there was a decidedly negative slant toward the immigrants, though I also learned that there are many grassroots organizations providing soap, clothing, and water to them, not trying to get involved in the process, just providing. Not answers, just tenderness. I know that the younger prodigal brother was neither an immigrant nor a refugee, but the older brother says so much about our typical response to that which is foreign, unknown, or misunderstood. I thought of a poem I stumbled across a couple of years ago by a Somali refugee. She's now based in London. Her name is Warsenshire. And her poem, which is very long and I won't read all of it, is called Home. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. Your neighbors running faster than you, breath bloody in their throats. The boy you went to school with who kissed you dizzy behind the old tin factory is holding a gun bigger than his body. You only leave home when, you won't, when home won't let you stay. No one leaves home unless home chases you, fire under your feet, hot blood in your belly. It's not something you ever thought of doing until the blade burnt threats into your neck. And even then you carry the anthem under your breath, only tearing up your passport in an airport toilet, sobbing as each mouthful of paper made it clear you wouldn't be going back. You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. No one burns their palms under trains, beneath carriages, 
No one spends days and nights in the stomach of a truck feeding on newspaper unless the miles traveled. I want to go home, but home is the mouth of a shark. Home is the barrel of the gun. And no one would leave home unless home chased you to the shore, unless home told you to quicken your legs, leave your clothes behind, crawl through the desert, wade through the oceans, drown, save, be hungry, beg, forget pride. Your survival is more important. No one leaves home until home is a sweaty voice in your ear saying, leave, run away from me now. I don't know what I've become, but I know that anywhere is safer than here. For those that feel helpless when the world is aching, I have never, ever had to run from home like this. Like Afghans coming in the belly of a cargo ship plane, like Central Americans trying to hold on to the bottom of trains. I cannot fix these situations. I can't even fully understand them. I know during Harvey, it was hard enough for us to leave our homes when the water was around our ankles. We wanted to stay home. I don't have all the answers, but am I able in some far reaches of my heart to enter into the pain? Thursday's prayer, a little bit later in the week from the Black Liturgy's Instagram was, protect the part of you that still winces at pain. Refuse to become too familiar with tragedy. Our souls were meant to stir. The best thing we can do, of course, I think we've both arrived at this conclusion, is be like the Father arms open, calf fattened, heart stirred, and able to love these two wildly different sons at once, the one who criticizes and the one who pleads forgiveness. Or like the mother, for that matter, who, as she watched her son come over the hills, sees him as she first did, as a kid learning to walk. Beyond the disappointments and heartbreaks, can we do this? Can we open our arms and just be with the pain? Perhaps the mother said to the father, Go, your sons need you. And that's what stirred him. I don't know. I think she's in the story, is really what I'm trying to say. Maybe after we invite both sons in, we can sit for a long while, a really long while, till both of these brothers can look each other in the eye and say, I feel your pain. So the bottom line of this parable is this. Sacred mystery like the compassionate father in this story, waits with open arms for us to grow up. Hmm. To claim peership with the sacred, which is what the father restored his younger son to and wished for his older son. And what is required of us is that we have the willingness and the courage, the heart, to have an adult mature faith. Now what that means is that we have to open our arms and hearts to both these sons, both internally and externally, who they stand for, both in the outer world and in the inner world. And when we do that, we will be practicing what we preach. Hmm. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we will see you here next week. Thank you. Don't forget <laughs> to mask on the way out. Yeah.